You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You got to be hard on yourself. Yeah. You got to be demanding of yourself, and you cannot rest on your laurels. Jim, you've had an amazing career. I mean, you've, you've, you've conquered radio. There's no one like you, but you want more. You, you, want, you don't want to stop now. I don't want to coast. And as I was doing this book, that was the mantra. I don't want to coast. I can do better. Maybe it won't sell as much as Friday Night Lights. It probably won't, but I can make this the best book of my life. Hey, now it's cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. I am Jim Rome. I've got a tremendous episode of the pod today, and I can't wait to get it out to you because I am joined by a Pulitzer Prize winner, can't say that very often, an icon who penned one of the greatest sports books ever written, and in fact, it's way more than a sports book. I am talking about journalist and author Buzz Bissinger. Now, Buzz might be best known for Friday Night Lights, but my man is a prolific writer and has been for decades and... His newest book, The Mosquito Bowl, tells another stunning story of a football team, but this book is way more than just about football. It is an amazing work, a great read, and it's been a long time since I've had a chance to catch up with Buzz, so I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Let's get right to it. It's episode 235 with award-winning journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner, Buzz Bissinger, and it's coming at you right now. So, Buzz, I've got to say, it's been a few years since you and I had a chance to get together and kind of chop it up, so it is awesome to have the opportunity to do so right now. Buzz, how you doing? You know, I'm, I'm uh, doing good. I was trying to think the last time we spoke. I think it was about Booby Miles, the black running back from uh, Friday Night Lights, and that was... That was over 10 years ago. But look, I just spent the past five years of my life on a new book. It's called The Mosquito Bowl. It's coming out uh, September 13th. And uh, I feel great about it. I feel great that I did it. And you know what, Jim? I'm really proud of this book. I almost never, ever say that. But I think in many ways it, it is my best book. Okay, so that's an amazing thing in and of itself, Buzz, that you just said that, that it's your best book. And, and well, you should be proud of that. That's a massive undertaking. You spent five years researching and writing the Mosquito Bowl. So let's just jump right into it. Where was the Mosquito Bowl and who played in that game? The Mosquito Bowl uh, took place on Christmas Eve of 1944 on the island of Guadalcanal. The 6th Division of the Marine Corps was uh, stationed there, and they were training for the next big battle that turned out to be the utter bloodbath of Okinawa. They've been training for months. They're a little bit bored, a little bit edgy. You know, Marines want to get it on. Am I going to live? Am I going to die? And morale was flagging. There were two regiments in the Marine Corps, the 4th and the 29th, that would argue constantly over beers, over, hey, who would have the better, better football team if we played each other? These guys, these regiments were stocked. I mean stocked with great college football players. Three All-Americans, 16 who were drafted or would be drafted by the pros, seven captains. The arguing stopped. They said, all right, let's get it on. And they played this game, the Mosquito Bowl, Christmas Eve of 1944. They beat the crap out of each other, which is what they wanted to do. 1,500 drunken Marines watched. It was a real game. I mean, they built goalposts and they had a marching bands and they had programs and it was broadcast on the Mosquito Radio Network. 
just, the score was 0-0, but I didn't really care because the upshot is of the 65 who played in that game, 15 were later killed several months later in the Battle of uh, Okinawa. All right, so Buzz, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is, as fascinating as that matchup sounds, this is not a book about football, is it? No, it's not, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, Friday Night Lights was really not a, a book about football. It was about the sociological impact. This features Marines who played football, but it is not about football except um, in the hold it had on the military, particularly the Navy. I mean, I found this fascinating. The Navy considered football to be the best single source of combat training. Um, so they let players in officer training programs um, play football. They let them participate in extracurricular activities because a lot of these programs were on academic uh, academic basis, so to speak. But it's not about, about football. It's about war, but it's really about honor, duty, sacrifice, uh, life and, and death, and that that's a mouthful, but that's really what it's about. And the Mosquito Bowl is just sort of the glue to write about several of the men, to go back in time uh, into their college careers, into joining the Marines, into the ups and downs, and then ultimately, there's no other word, into the absolute relentless horror of Okinawa. Mm. So, Buzz, let's go back in time. Like, as you point out, America has always been imperfect. But would you consider this period a special time? And if so, what made it so? You know, without a doubt, without a doubt. And it's one of the reasons uh, I, I did the book. As I was researching early on, look, America has always had its flaws, its warts. We all have flaws. We all have warts. But to me, this was the peak of America, the peak of unity, the peak of commitment, the peak of the entire country coming together. Um, and, you know, I pray probably like you do, that maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get back to it. I don't know, but in World War II, everybody served. It didn't matter, it didn't matter what background you were from, what socioeconomics you were from, uh, black served, even though they were not allowed to participate in combat. Women were working in factories and men from every stripe uh, were in combat. So when you're in a foxhole and maybe you're from Brooklyn and you only have an eighth grade education and suddenly you're with some guy from Yale who can spout Shakespeare, you don't care. The only thing you care about is will he cover my back? And so I think it taught a lot of respect for different parts of the country. It was an absolutely beautiful time. And I do want to remind readers of that, of what we can be if we all believe in something. Hmm. It's so important to have that message of hope and optimism. But let's go back to what you said. How many players from the Mosquito Bowl fought in the Battle of Okinawa? And for those who do not know, can you just speak to the battle itself and how absolutely horrific and fierce it sure. was? You know, I didn't really, I knew it was horrific. I had no idea, uh, Jim, 240, roughly 240,000 people died. Americans, Japanese, and civilians, 240,000 people died in 82 days. Hmm. That's roughly 3,000 a day. And that was absolutely mind boggling to me. And, you know, in horrific, difficult conditions, because the Japanese were basically hidden, and there's only way to get at them, which is to attack. You know, you can only use artillery so much. You have to get in there, and you have to attack, and they're dug into hills. 
and and caves, and it was just a brutal, uh, brutal, you know, bloodbath. All the sixty-five who played did go to Okinawa. They they all were in combat, and fifteen of those men uh, never came home. So I mean, um, unbelievable and horrific and tragic. But what about those that did come home? How dramatically had the world changed for the Marines who did make it home? You know, look, the, 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 you're you're always going to be scarred by by what you see and what you remember. They they came home. I write uh, about a wonderful character named John McLowry, who was captain at Brown and uh, started for the New York Giants, and. Uh, I was told uh, by a family member, he, he came home very different. There was kind of a blankness in his eyes. He was much quieter. He had lost a certain, you know, spirit, a certain joie de vivre. But, you know, Jim, the interesting thing is these guys, when they came home, they were determined to get on with their lives. They wanted to put this behind them. They didn't want to linger in the memories of it, whether they were good or bad, but never indifferent. They took advantage of the GI Bill. They, they went to college. Uh, they got ahead. I mean, they grasped the American dream at a time when it was really grasp, graspable by so many people. And they managed to put a lot of it behind them. Some didn't. Some were scarred forever. Some became alcoholics. And many got divorced. But by and large, they said, all right, it's time for me to live my life. And by the way, that included my father, who was a rifleman at Okinawa. Hey now, are you craving some protein after a good workout? Of course. Can I tell you, I'm starving after every workout. So this time, do not make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and it's tender. And it's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef extremely seriously. And you can taste it in every single bite. I mean, who wants dried out, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness. Teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy for those who like to take things up a notch. So next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see exactly what you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, clones, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? So, Buzz, what, and and knowing I've had family members or in-laws that served, and they certainly did not like to talk about it or share it, and I can understand that. What about you and your father? How much did he share with you about what he experienced? He shared virtually nothing, and I knew very little except he had been a Marine at Okinawa. Actually, the, the one thing my father did tell me is that, he said, you know, I was drafted by the Navy, but I didn't want to die on a ship which was typical of my father. He was somewhat negative like I am. And so what does he do? He joins the Marines. What are you kidding me? <laughs> he never talked about it. He would talk about it, you know, in bits and pieces, almost in a humorous way. He could not talk about it. There was a family get together and the, the subject of the war came up and he had to leave. He had to go down and, and smoke a cigarette. So he never talked about it. And I didn't want to push, but in the course of doing the book proposal, I, you know, I finally said, I might as well look up his records or some of them. I might as well see what the hell he did. 
And Jim, I, I look, I get the muster rolls, I find his name, and not only is he a rifleman on the front lines, he is in one of the regiments that I'm writing about. That was freaky, that was spooky, that was amazing, and that put me over the, over the top. It's not a book, A Search for Your Father, but in the course of doing it, I became so immeasurably proud of him because now I understand what he went through. And to me, to this day, it will be incredible. I don't know how he got off the boat. I don't know how he got off the transports. I don't know how he went to shore, even though I've spent five years. I don't know how any of these men did what they did, but they did because as I say in summary, these were ordinary men rising to extraordinary circumstances, which I think is the best thing you can perhaps uh, say about uh, anybody. Uh, they I, weren't I, perfect. Yeah, Buzz, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, I can't even get my head around it. I, can't, I cannot wrap no. my head around ordinary right. men putting themselves or being put in these extraordinary situations. I, I can't imagine myself doing it. I can't imagine a loved one doing it. And people do, and thank God they do, because... I'm not. We're not. I can only imagine what that must have been like. The NFL's opening week was action-packed, and it's just getting started. Get ready for week two of touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And this week, new customers can bet just 5 bucks on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. Want more action? Everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. It's simple. This Sunday, bet on any NFL team to win if your team leads by 10 at any point during that game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and use the promo code ROAM to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code ROAM, R-O-M-E, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions do apply. See show notes for details. Like, my father passed away when he was 59. He was diagnosed with leukemia when he was 50. And, no, thank you. He, you know, Buzz, you know, this was a different generation. This, I've told the story many times, but it bears repeating. When he was diagnosed with leukemia, and he he and my mother owned a small manufacturing firm business, and they pulled Mm -hmm. my sister and I aside and said, we're not telling anybody. I'm like, what do you mean you're not telling anybody? You have cancer. How can you not tell anybody? He said, we're not telling anybody. I don't want any pity. I don't want anybody focusing on me. It's not good for business. It's not good for, I don't want that. And when he ultimately passed away, and before he did, I went in the family business buzz before he fired me, which I deserved. But I, I got so much pride out of meeting people after the fact that would say, you know, your old man was this or he was that. And this was just somebody, just a normal guy from Boston who had a small business who came to California. I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to do that research and learn about your father. How much pride did you have and what was that like to learn about him after the fact? Well, you know, learn, obviously learning through him indirectly, but the pride was immeasurable because I came as close as I possibly could, could to figuring out how they did get off the transports. You know, to set the stage, you're in a little boat, often called a Higgins boat or what they called an alligator, and you're going towards shore. It takes about half an hour to 45 minutes. And you know, you know, the Japanese are dug in. They're often hidden. You don't know where the fire and the artillery is come from. The only thing you know, in most cases, it's going to be chaos. And you are going to be a sitting duck until enough men get on shore. And, you know, some are terrified. 
Some will shoot themselves. Some say, I'm not going to hurt. But almost to a man, they all go. And I think it had to do with what they thought their duty was to their country. And duty to country is doing what is required without asking. And they were private men. I did find that at the end of their lives, they were more inclined to talk about it because they wanted to leave a legacy. But like your dad, and ironically and tragically, my dad died of leukemia as well over 20 years ago. Hmm. But they didn't want to sell it. You know, if you ask them, you say, God, you're a hero. They don't get upset, but they look at you like you're crazy. Right. I wasn't a hero. I was doing my job. I was doing my duty out of out of love and respect for my country. Please don't call me a hero. And that blew me away, too, because they were heroes, but they didn't want that type of attention. We had a job to do. We had duty. We had service. We loved our country. And we went and did it with enormous, enormous sacrifice. I mean, Okinawa, the casualty rate for the regiments and the division was over 50 percent, 50 over 50 percent. This is why Truman dropped the atom bomb. Right. He was horrified by the casualties in Okinawa. The Japanese were getting smarter. They were getting better. They were hidden. Their only goal at that point was to try to drag out the war and kill as many Americans as possible. They were very effective in that. And Truman said, that's it. I'm not going to lose another boy on foreign soil. And, you know, Jim, when you, I've seen some pictures of these guys, some of them who died, they, they still were kids to me. They were boys. They were young. They had their lives in, in, in front of them to, to get married, to have children, to have ups, to have a career. I wrote uh, the book and I kept a picture of one of them next to me. And I would often, this isn't just BS, I would look into his eyes I would be reminded of my dad, but I would just, I would get slightly teary and say, God, what a waste. I understand why they had to do it, but what a waste. This, his name was Dave Schreiner. He was two-time All-American from Wisconsin. The perfect All-American. Loved his family. His family loved him. He was totally in love with a woman from Madison. They wrote the most beautiful letters back and forth, and they will make you cry. And you can imagine, you can guess what happened to him. And I, and frankly, he was out on a silly patrol. It, he never should have been out there. So it really was a waste. But if you asked him posthumously, he said, I was doing my job. And this was my job to protect my country, to defeat the enemy. And I did what was required. And that's the way it goes. So I've got a question for you guys. Do you feel like your antiperspirant keeps you dry all day long? Well, Dove Men Plus Care Dry Spray has an instantly drying antiperspirant formula that can help give you a cleaner feel and offers 48-hour sweat and odor protection. I said 48 hours. Generally, if something seems too good to be true, it is, but not in this case. Dove Men Dry Spray feels light and clean on your skin, and it's quick and it's easy to use, especially when you're on the move. Also, Dove Men Dry Spray contains Dove's unique one-quarter moisturizing cream that helps to protect your skin. It leaves your skin feeling comfortable, and it does protect it. You want that. You need that. Try Dove Men Dry Spray. Goes on dry, clean feel all day. 
you know, Buzz, I'm really getting chills just hearing this whole thing. You know, even our our son, our oldest son, is a senior at the University of Wisconsin right now. We've spent a lot of time in Madison. Yeah, he is. And believe it or not, we built a house in northern Wisconsin in Eagle River in the Northwoods. So I spent a lot of time in that part of the state now. Buzz, I mean, the whole thing is just so mind-blowing. It makes me wonder, for instance, what about the families, because it was such a different time and the world was set up so differently, what about the families of the men who served who had to wait and wonder if they were ever going to receive that dreaded telegram? Well, I think that's a, I think that's a great question, because the one of the parts of the book, look, it's not only about men, and it's, it's about white men, because, you know, the military was built, still very, very restrictive. But one of my favorite parts of the book was I was able to get letters from mothers and fiancés, and they are so poignant because they just want to keep their, they do dread the telegram. They think about it every day, every minute, but in their letters, all they want to do is keep the spirits of their sons high. So it's these beautiful little details about what's going on in the hometown and who's gotten fat, who's gotten thin. (laughs) And who has a new dog? And it, it, I get quiet because it's just it's just so beautiful and so touching. And then early one morning, there's a knock on the door and there's that form telegram telling you that, that your son has died. And you got to remember, there's no Internet. So it's 10 days later and you can't believe it, but you do accept it. You accept it in the sense that you knew what we were getting into, what their sons were getting into, but it doesn't make it any easier. You're going to think about it for the rest of your lives. Uh, Fiancés are the same. You never let go of it. Your lives go on, but you will always, always remember the person you first loved. You know, Buzz, you were so prolific. You began this conversation when we talked about the Mosquito Bowl, and you said, I think that I'm more proud of this book than any I've ever written. Let's remember, you won a Pulitzer Prize at age 32. You, of course, wrote Friday Night Lights. You you have been prolific. You've had an amazing career. Why why is this the book and the project that you were most proud of above all else? Well, I think it was it was a it's a was a complex book to write. There's there's a there's a lot in it. As I say, the game itself is actually a very minor part of the book. It's the glue that that keeps these men together. It's what they all have in common. But you're going back in time to write about some of these guys. You're trying to get as much detail as you can to make them come alive. Jim, look, the problem was, and I debated this for over a year, was of the 65 who played, everybody was dead. There was one who was alive. And, you know, as a journalist, you say, well, how am I going to? know any of these people how am i going to make them alive if they're all gone and then i was lucky that many several of them had left a really great paper trail of letters and transcripts and drawings and letters home from camp and all sorts of things um but there's a lot in the book there's a lot of a lot in it about the nature of war that affects all of these men and affects soldiers everywhere you know um racism in the military the horror of inner service rivalry that related, that resulted in casualties. The Marines hated the Navy, the Navy hated the Marines, the Army hated the Marines. They did not get together. They were fighting all the time. So there are a lot of aspects to the book. There are a lot of pieces that you have to put together, but you know, I don't like comparisons, but look, Friday Lights, I'm really proud of as well, of course, but the stakes was high school football. Here, literally the stakes were 
life and death. And so to me, that that puts it sort of on a pedestal above any of the books that I've written. Here, the stakes are literal life and death. And the stakes are who's going to make it out because of luck and who's not because of luck. Because unfortunately, in war, killing is very, very arbitrary. Mm. So, Buzz, really quickly before you go, you mentioned Friday Night Lights, just such an amazing, amazing book, and it created an entire genre. It motivated and inspired a generation of young journalists. I'm kind of curious, like, what kind of an impact, as you look back now, what kind of an impact did the book have on you personally, and then how much pressure did you feel internally to try to top that? Well, you know, I, I imagine you're the same way. You want to top what we've done in the past. I mean, we're ambitious. You want to go further. You want to go higher. You want to uh, accomplish more. And I knew two to three years after Friday Night Lights, it's not going to happen. I mean, the book was still selling like hotcakes. It still sells today. It has sold close to two million copies. As you know, it's been a movie. It's been a TV series. Listen, I'm waiting for the musical. I don't know how they'll pull it off, but I'm waiting for the musical. <laughs> right. That'll be the, the trifecta for you me. You bet. And it causes pressure because I can't top it. The only way I can top it is to, is to find other ideas and other ideas for a book that I think may be more complex and perhaps even more important. For a while, I was depressed. I said, you know, you're a has-been. I'm hard on myself. You're a has-been. You're like the literary equivalent of the high school quarterback who takes his team to the state and never plays again because no one wants him. But my father sat me down and said, look, this is a good problem to have. You've written a great book. It's become iconic. So you know what? Stop feeling sorry for yourself and embrace it. And then bit by bit, you know, I did. Where I can say you candidly now, I really am uh, proud of it. You know, we could talk about how complicated other banks make it to redeem credit card rewards, like how they require minimums, and worse yet, how the rewards flat out expire. Or we could talk about how with Discover, you can redeem your rewards for cash in any amount at any time. I mean, you want to talk about amazing. And now that we've talked about that, why don't we get back to doing what we do best, talking some junk and talking sports. You know, what we do, where we live, who we are. Learn more at discover.com slash redeem rewards. Terms do apply. Yeah, you're bet. I'm sure there's so much more to it than that. And even that is so great. I mean, that is such a candid response. But before you go, like you said at the very top, it's been a number of years since you and I have spoken. I've always found you to be so fascinating and brilliant. I'm kind of curious, and I say this respectfully, you know, when you talked about the people you wrote about in the Mosquito Bowl, we're talking about really private people. Seems to me, and I would argue that you were a very private person. And then for a period, you actually lived a pretty public life and a public life buzz where you talked about pretty private things. I'm curious, was that liberating or maybe not so much? It's a great question. And I, I, I have conflict. I have to say at the end, it was too much. I went too public. I know the reasons that I did. I thought I was, I sincerely thought I was talking about things that needed to be talked about to take off the taboo of things, particularly things involving sex and certain appetites. As Caitlyn Jenner said, we all have stuff. It was about trying to be authentic, but you're talking, I I assume about the documentary called Buzz. When I watched it, I had hurt my incredible wife, Lisa. Um, I was devastated by that. The time in my life was not a great one. And I think there was some self-destructiveness involved. I had no work. Vanity Fair had gone kaput for me. Everyone had been fired. There was a new regime coming in. I had no book idea. You know, and you get scared. 
And when you get scared, for me, you act out and you become self-destructive. I don't want to exaggerate. This book saved my life in the sense that I finally went back to what I was good at. I went back to the roots of Friday Night Lights or Three Nights in August about the art of managing. I went back to what I was good at. I went back to what was my own. No more documentary. No more going to Hollywood. No more writing books for others. This is mine. I take it in the direction that I want. And that was really, really liberating and fun. And, you know, for me, spiritually crucial. I love that so much, Buzz. I really do. One last thought, because I think this is an important point to make. I think that if you don't know any better, somebody might look at you as a Pulitzer Prize winner, a brilliant guy, and think, you know, it's it's writing, right? It must be easy for Buzz. It must be natural. There's got to be this permanence to it. He could always do it. Like, is any of that actually true? No. And, you know, when people say, well, you can always write, that's ridiculous. Right. Writing takes energy. Um, it takes tremendous brain power. Um, reporting takes you're only as good as your legs. I, I teach at Penn, and I say that to my students. You're only as good as your legs, and when your legs get tired, when your eyes get tired, you're going to lose your effectiveness. And it's an inevitable part of age. You lose your legs. The sentences don't come as easily. You're trying to get them out. You're trying for the right word, and two things happen. Either it's the wrong word, or you realize, I wrote that 20 years ago. Um, so it's not something you can do forever because it really, really gets to be exhausting. Your brain just does not work with the sharpness, you know, that it once had. And who knows, this this could be my last one. I mean, I'm 67. The idea of another five-year project that doesn't come out until my mid-70s, forget that. I want to have some fun in life. Buzz, I mean, what you just said is so great. Like, you, you lose your legs. Like, fighters, right? You have to have your legs. That's why you can't yep. have sex before fights. Buzz, I'm like... I'm 50, I'm almost 58 right now, and I, I'm the same way. Like, I'm in this fight, man. I want this badly. I want to remain competitive. Right. I want to remain re- relevant. How do we, as we get older, how do we maintain our legs so we make sure the words do come to us and the takes do come to us and we have that creativity? Like, what's the approach? What advice do you have? I mean, for me, the approach is, and there's limits, and I go too far, you got to be hard on yourself. Yeah. You got to be demanding of yourself and you cannot rest on your laurels. Jim, you had an amazing career. I mean, you've, you've, you've conquered radio. There's no one like you, but you want more. You, you want, you don't want to stop now. And I imagine you are hard on yourself. I can do better. I can do more. I don't want to coast. And as I was doing this book, that was the mantra. I don't want to coast. I can do better. Maybe it won't sell as much as Friday Night Lights. It probably won't, but, I can make this the best book of my life. And that's the incentive. And that's what I use. You know, be hard on yourself. Be demanding of yourself. The minute you rest on laurels and say, God, that was great. I did this. I did that. You know, you're sunk. So this may be the best book I've ever written. But I do hope that I write another one that's even better. I absolutely love it. The book is amazing. The Mosquito Bowl. It seems pretty self-evident, Buzz, but, you know, I'll ask the question anyway. If the listeners want to get their copy, and they absolutely should, it's a must-read, where do they go? I would imagine anywhere and everywhere books are sold, but let's just be very clear yes, about this. Where any, do they go? Anywhere. I mean, obviously, the, the big players of, of, you know, Amazon, but Costco has ordered tens of thousands of copies. Uh, Walmart has, so you can get it at a deep discount. You can get it anywhere. The launch was... 
September 13th, which for me is today. So it's available um, anywhere. And do me a favor, buy it for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, my birthday, your birthday. You can never have enough copies of the Mosquito Bowl. That's you, what I've decided. You cannot have enough copies. The Mosquito Bowl, <laughs> a game of life and death in World War II. Buzz, can I say that because the book is dropping on the 13th, sure. I, I, want to, I want to acknowledge that I know that you made a point of coming on and making us one of your first stops. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I can't tell you how good it is to hear your voice. I can't say how inspired I am by the whole thing. Just a really, really good conversation, Buzz. Thank you so much. And most of all, congratulations on an epic, epic work. Well, Jim, thank you. I always love talking to you. I remember the last time uh, vividly, and it was a great conversation. You're the best at what you do, but Jim, keep it up. Don't rest on your walls. As mentioned, honestly, it's been a number of years since Buzz and I came together, so I'd been looking forward to that conversation for quite some time, and it was even better than I hoped that it would be, and I had high expectations. Brilliant and iconic and his ability to communicate why sports are so important to so many people and how they fit into a bigger historical picture really is compelling and unique. There's nobody like this guy. That conversation was raw. It was honest. It was insightful. It was gripping. In other words, it was everything that I want this podcast to be and what this podcast is built for. If you want to hear more conversations like this, be sure to subscribe right now. That way you never have to go looking for another app. It will always find its way directly to you. In the meantime, if you have not subscribed, please do that. And I will get you your voicemails as you do so. First new message. Hey, Jim. Lance in OKC. Just heard the announcement on your show while driving around about baseball and the new rule changes. Baseball freaking sucks. But it did made me think of a dad joke. Why is it so hot in Major League Baseball stadiums? Hmm? Because they don't have any fans. <laughs> Help! Message deleted. Next message. Well, hey, Justin in Melbourne. Um, Avi. Where the hell have you been, dude? I've been blowing up your phone for the last week. I needed help. Fantasy football, bro. You're supposed to be the guru. Meanwhile, I'm picking 11th on a 12-league team, and my team now is pathetic. Thanks for nothing, Alvy. I really needed you this year. Message saved. Next message. Hello. I don't know where Rick and Buffalo is, but I know where he wasn't. And hey, Jeremy, I mean, Greeny. Buffalo is here, baby. We're going to beat you. We're going to be Arrogant Rogers on halloween So choke on that. See you in October. I wanted to shout out to Von Miller. Burn it all. It goes to the core of the soul of the Bills Mafia. War the Buffalo Bills and war our road to the Super Bowl this year. Let's go, Buffalo. Woo! Message saved. Next message. Romy Rome. I just finished listening to your podcast, The Reinvention Project with E.T., and it was so dope. I just ordered the book, pre-ordered, U-O-U, and I couldn't be more hyped, dude. That podcast was so sick, and the interaction that you guys had was so strong and so powerful and so cool. All the clones, they got to hear this, man. I am hyped. Can't wait to get my book. As soon as I read it, I'm going to call back and let you know how it was because I know it's going to be awesome. Thanks, bud. Have a great weekend. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. How about Texas A&M getting beat by Appalachian State on Saturday? All I could think of when I watched that game and saw the highlights of that game 
was the Cavalin Asian smack-off call where he made fun of Jimbo Fisher and how Texas A&M is, you know, think they're, they're the big shots of college football and Jimbo Fisher is paying all these players, you know, for years and years. Texas A&M has been an underachiever for years. They just took themselves out of national title contention. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Hansback? It's Brady. So I've been in Massachusetts near Boston, and I keep pronouncing all the names of these towns wrong, like Lemonster and Worcester, and it's like none of these names are pronounced like they're spelled. So I want to ask, do you have some type of chow dictionary that I could borrow, like pronunciation dictionary, because I really need that. Thanks. Message deleted. You have no more messages.